This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seats, two-term incumbents, independence. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hi there, welcome to the party room. I'm Patricia Carvelos from RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Fran Kelly on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. And the big jobs and skills summit is on in Canberra right now as we speak, as we record this on a Thursday morning. And soon we're going to be joined by the Guardian Sarah Martin to have a look at all of that. But we have to start. We just have to start the party room this week with the shack attack. And here he is. Hello, Neil. Hey. Sir, how are you? How are you going? Good to Hello, see you. Hello, Australia. Nice to see you. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Nice to see you. <laughs> I'm here in your country. Whatever you need from me, you just let me know. Fantastic. Appreciate thank you. you guys. Congratulations to you guys. Everyone knows Shaq loves Australia. All right? Awesome. All right, I'll see you soon. Thanks, Matt. Have a good time. Thank you. Yes, Matt. All right. Shaq loves Australia. U.S. basketballer, former basketball legend, of course, Shaquille O'Neal. Spectacular and really quite awkward appearance at the Prime Minister's press conference on the weekend, PK. What was Shaq doing dropping by that press conference to say, well, pretty much nothing really? Um, Some people, including the Greens, Senator Lydia Thorpe, were pretty critical of the stunt on the basis of what would he know and who cares anyway. He's not Indigenous, even if he is black. What do you reckon? Did, Did all this... Cause more trouble than it was worth? Did it backfire? Depends who you ask, of course. Look, I think the reason, uh, firstly, the Prime Minister made it clear that he approached the government um, and he's said that he'll front, uh, you know, videos, some recordings saying that he supports The Voice, right? Mm -hmm. And The Voice to Parliament for representing Indigenous Australians, for those who are wondering, what am I talking about? So that's what he said. Now, I think the reason uh, this is resonating uh, is is that obviously it was quite quite a moment, like visually, this visually enormous is man, and the the prime minister looked, and the prime minister's not really a small he man, looked diminutive, shall we say? He did, he did, and Linda Burney is like kind of as short as me. Um, I'm short too. Um, hello, short people, uh, and so she looked tiny too. So you know, you know, visually it was quite something, and he didn't talk about the voice when he stood up. I understand that it was weird, but I don't know. For those online, and, and it got really quite willing online, mm. um, saying, who is, you know, who is he? No one even knows who this guy is, some people were saying. Actually, he's really, really, really well known, oh, particularly yeah. in huge. multicultural suburbs in, in Sydney and Melbourne, and I know in remote Aboriginal communities too. He's known as a hero. When I was growing up in the 90s, like everyone um, knew who this guy was. Uh, he was just a legend. And so... What is the point of getting his endorsement and could it backfire? Well, yes, of course it could. And having any really high-profile person can sometimes backfire because it's that elite thing. You know, people go, who are, he, who are these outsiders? Like, there is always risk. But he does have cut-through. And all the people who um, he appeals to, I would say a lot of those people aren't really across the details of what a voice is. And so as one Aboriginal leader said to me, um, as just we were talking this week, just off the record, not on the show or anything, said, you know, if, if it were 
raises questions of what's the voice among any people who had no idea that the thing called the voice was even being discussed, then it's had some success um, to, to say that he's some sort of outsider and come in and, you know, none of his business is a little bit overstating it. I mean, like, you know... Really? Um, now, the Prime Minister said everyone should just chill out. Um, he, he didn't know what all the fuss was. But, Fran, I suppose it's it's been um, it's been a real talking point, and I suppose that starts a conversation, doesn't it, at a time when the government wants more and more people talking about the idea of the voice. Yeah, and like you said, I read some a, co- a comment piece from uh, Indigenous academic from the West, Hannah McGlade, this week too, saying, look, just basically echoing the Prime Minister, I think, chill out. While she wasn't necessarily a Shaq fan, that his profile is enormous with uh, a lot of Indigenous youth and, and, and in some areas of the country where this message is you know needs to get out. And this is the early days of a campaign. The campaign hasn't even really started yet. So this will perhaps be just a tiny piece of a campaign. But, you know, it's it's along the lines of all publicity is good publicity, I suppose. That's, that's the thinking. Um, but, you know, there's been a bit of publicity around the voice this week, PK. That kicked it off. But then uh, we've had some intervention in on this from the Greens. You spent a fair bit of time on your program this week talking about it. Yeah. So the Greens are becoming really interesting on this. They've made it clear uh, for a long time now that um, um, voice isn't their priority, that treaty and truth-telling is, and that they'll demand that. Uh, and they don't have an official position against the voice. But Fran, if you listen to uh, many of the Greens speak now, and particularly two First Nations senators inside the Greens, increasingly it sounds actually to me like it is opposition to the voice because of the sorts of things that are being said. I'll give you one example. The WA Greens Indigenous Senator Dorinda Cox. Now, I spoke to her on breakfast and she had a string of concerns about the voice And also the process leading up to the Uluru Statement of the Heart really poking um, holes at the actual process itself and the legitimacy, including this comment. Exclusivity um, applied to lots of those forums. What we know is 60% of them were non-First Nations people. We also know that lots of those people were um, were people who were invited to those forums. This was not about grassroots democracy. I do have to challenge you on that again. You're saying 60% of the people in the Uluru Dialogues were non-Aboriginal? Yes, it's in the report. You, not- you certainly know Aboriginal people are also calling for the voice. It's, it's not just non-Aboriginal people calling for the voice. Are you opposed to the voice? No, I'm not. I believe that, I believe that there should be a choice and we will work with Labor in relation to what that voice looks like. I'm not, oppo- I'm not opposed to First Nations people having a voice to Parliament. I'm... That's, that's my job. I need to make sure that all of their voices are being heard. Interesting, right? And I, I thought the 60% figure sounded wrong. Uh, well, my instinct was straight away, that's mm. just not right. Tried to challenge her on it. She said it was in the report. Later in the week, responding to Senator Cox, we had the co-chair of the Uluru Dialogue, Pat Anderson, on the show. Now, Pat Anderson was at every one of those many consultation meetings. A lot of work went into this with Indigenous Australians. So if anyone knows who was involved, I suspect she does, and she was adamant. Here she is. Is that figure correct? 60% of people at the forums were non-Indigenous? No, it's completely incorrect. You know, we can't have politicians presenting misinformation about Uluru. You know, we're up for debate, but it must be based on facts. So it's, it's... just not true. It's just not true. 
Just not true. That's Pat Anderson, Aliawara woman and co-chair of the Uluru Dialogues there. I suspect, um, speaking at cross-purposes, PK, that the Uluru um, Statement of the Heart came out of a range of forums across the country, right across the country. Pat Anderson was at every single one of them, and uh, and they were Indigenous Australians there. That's that's who they were. That's who was invited. That's who was there. The report, maybe that uh, Senator Cox is talking about, was a government process set up with a committee that then looked at how it might work. And they also held forums or meetings, and that was not all Indigenous. But whatever the point is, the question you're asking is: Are the Greens for the voice? or against it because Greens leader Adam Bant has been pretty clear on the record several times saying the Greens won't stand in the way of anything that'll advance the lives of Indigenous Australians. So, you know, you'd think that would include the voice and the proposed change to the constitution because, again, it's not government that came up with the idea of the voice, it's Aboriginal people. But now there's also another Green senator, Senator Lydia Thorpe, um, also Indigenous, um, saying a referendum for the voice is a waste of money. That's her latest comment, that the money would be better spent directly in Indigenous communities. So again, another negative take on the voice from the Greens. Yeah, and I thought a really uh, bizarre argument from her, actually, and in so much as, uh, look, I'm just going to be blunt, I've never seen the Greens too worried about the spending of money, um, and yet on this one, um, all of a sudden, it's the money that's the issue, the money being spent on Well, it's about it. where it's going, I suppose. Not that she doesn't want to spend, it's about oh. where she wants to spend. Well, she doesn't want it to be spent on a referendum. I don't know. It sounds increasingly to me like every single thing these people are saying is that they're not really enthusiastic fans of The Voice. And so you can say all you want as the Greens leader, we're not against The Voice, but if you're spending all of your waking moments when uh, provided microphones to undermine the whole purpose of the voice, you can understand why the people behind the Uluru Statement from the Heart, are, and they're the ones who are deeply upset at the moment yeah. that this is going on. Yeah, but but then again, if you look at the politics of this, it would seem to me on the face of it impossible that the Greens wouldn't support the voice. I mean, the latest polls have something, I, can't, I don't know the exact figure, but almost as high as 80%, some of them, I think, for the idea of the voice. Greens voters, you'd think, would be almost close to 100%, I reckon. So why would Adam Bant want to sink it? You know, what's in it for them? It seems this, this ultimately, a referendum bill is going to have to come to the parliament. Are the Greens really going to vote against uh, a bill that would, you know, introduce into our legislation recognition of the first Australians and implementing the voice. I find it hard to see how that would happen. Yes, they want treaty. Yes, they want truth telling. The Labor government is, I think, the reason they're going for the voice first is because if you go for treaty, that's a long, drawn-out process. We've already seen the Victorian treaty process up to three years and it's nowhere near through. Do we really want to delay all kind of constitutional representation for the first Australians, again, by many, many years, you know, why not back this ref referendum, try and secure one of the changes to the Uluru Statement? The government is going to make some moves around the notion of truth-telling or Makarada at the same time. We know that. We just don't know what it is yet. Um, they're going to have to do more, I think, to try and offset this this kind of theme coming from Lydia Thorpe there, also coming from the Liberal Senator Jacinta Price, that, you know, you, it's all symbolic and you've got to put money on the ground. I think the government, when it comes to the Closing the Gap initiatives, will probably have to come up with some more there to try and, you know, rebut that argument. But for right now, I just can't see the politics of why the Green would, Greens would ever, when it came to the crunch, not support it. But maybe they won't, but maybe at the end when it does come to 
to the crunch, they will not not block any necessary legislation. My point but is that the damage that, is done. Yeah, that that, that they're undermining it, and uh, the and the benchmark for success of a referendum has to be really high. So if you're already sowing doubt all the time, consistently, I mean, they were out there, uh, Lydia Thorpe was out there with the shack, uh, the shack attack too, saying mm. it was outrageous that he was here. The platform is always about saying that the voice, that it's a waste of time anytime uh, there's an advocacy for the voice. And so what really, this is my view at the moment from watching this closely. I don't know how you land this thing when you've got the right and the left um, so the the centre right, the Liberal Party, um, still not determined, still want you know saying show me more detail, and then you've got the left raising questions constantly about its legitimacy. Uh, it means you know Labor would probably say yeah we're the the sensible centre, but a referendum very hard to pass, and it's not just a simple fifty percent sort of proposition. So we are talking actually because you know you have to have the majority of states. It's not just the number of votes across the country. I just think it's going to be really hard to land this, Fran. I'm starting to think it's going to be really hard to land this. Well, there's a way to go yet. Let's see. I think this is a perfect time to bring in our guest. What do you reckon? Let's do it. <laughs> Sarah Martin is the Chief Political Correspondent for The Guardian Australia. Welcome to the party room. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sarah. Great to have you on board. Sarah, the Government's Jobs and Skills Summit is kicking off as we record this podcast on Thursday morning. So thanks for being with us. And oh, not look, there's no party like an industrial relations party. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's why we're really grateful you're here. The PM marked his 100 days in office with a key speech this week. And this message to the country, or was it actually a message to the summiteers? Let's have a listen. The biggest single outcome I'm hoping for it's the beginning of a new culture of cooperation, a renewed understanding between unions and industry and small business and government and community groups, that building a stronger, fairer and more productive economy is our shared responsibility and our common interest. Now, Sarah, was that actually a plea from the Prime Minister <laughs> and is Labor showing the way when it comes to consensus and compromise? How's this going to influence the summit, if at all? Yeah, it's a really good question. I guess time will tell. I mean, obviously, we're sort of at this stage where we're hearing these highfalutin sentiments from the Prime Minister. And I think everyone is going into this with good intentions. I guess, as we know, the lack of collaboration and consensus always comes about once you get into the weeds and really into the fine print of legislation. So I think what we're going to see throughout the summit is obviously a, a good spirit of cooperation. We've already seen uh, unions and industry come to agreement on a bunch of issues and, and agree that there needs to be changes to the enterprise bargaining system, for example. Um, but I think really it, it remains to be seen how long that spirit of collaboration lasts uh, once we get into the fine print of what changes to the industrial relations regime are actually going to take place. For sure. Look, the government did have some early wins here mm. with a joint statement between the ACTU, the trade unions, and, and the Council of Small Business Organisations agreeing mm. to work together towards multi employer bargaining. Mm. And before the summit kicked off, the ACTU again, they've been busy, uh, came out with the Business Council of Australia on some big ticket items. For instance, simplifying the better off overall test, uh, the boot, which has been contentious. Now we've yep. seen shifts from the government saying they are prepared to move on the boot as well. And they were pretty steadfast against that in the past. How much real change do these, these two agreements signal? 
Well, look, I think I think potentially quite a lot of change, um, particularly if the government can translate those sort of agreement in principle to changes to the legislation that are supported through the parliament. I mean, obviously, we know that the enterprise bargaining framework uh, needs reform. The, the, the number of people who are dealing with enterprise bargaining agreements, it continues to drop. And so that leaves many people sort of just reliant on the award. Um, so, you know, that there has been a, a call to change the better off overall test for some time. Um, we know that we've been in this position before, however, and it never quite made it through the legislation phase. Um, but potentially, particularly for those feminised industries, so particularly for women working in childcare and aged care, it, it could make a big difference because a lot of those people sort of f- fall through the the gaps and mm. are reliant on the award. And if you've got a situation where you've got those workers able to be part of the, the bargaining system at, at an industry level, um, then hopefully that will help improve their wages and conditions. Yeah, that's exactly where the multi-employer bargaining comes in. And the Industrial Relations Minister, Tony Burke, has made it pretty clear for a while now he's a big fan of this Mm. change because, and he's always pointing, as you just did then, to what we might call the feminised industries or the care industries as where they can really come into their own. Mm. Um, And he's also making it clear he wants it. You know, this new government is in action mode. They certainly don't want this this summit to be dismissed as a a talk fest. Mm. I think it's pretty clear he wants to bring legislation on multi-employment employer bargaining to the parliament as soon as he possibly can, I think. He's, yeah. he's made it clear. He's nailed his colours, hasn't he? Absolutely. And I guess the question remains as to whether it's going to be just particular industries and sectors or whether it's going to be across the board. It seems at this stage it's more likely to be just particular sectors. Um, obviously, the employment employer groups have given sort of, you know, very caveated support mm. for, for this and has, have suggested that industry-wide is a no-go as far as they're concerned. So um, still a lot of, you know, obviously early positive signs of agreement, but still a, a, lot, a lot of water yeah. beyond the bridge yeah, just to pick you up on that, because in the past when we've talked about sort of, uh, you know, sector bargaining, uh, and this is what, when some of the business groups are hark- saying it's harking back to the 70s, it's been the building industries, for instance, you know, bringing the country to their knees sort of in, in support of uh, a building site somewhere in, in another state or something. Mm. But very much Tony Burke is talking about, as is Sally McManus from the ACTU, you know, childcare, small childcare centres trying to operate together to work out a set of, a set of reforms that would, you know, mm. bargaining reforms that would work for them. So very much shifting the focus here. So do you think any legislation will pinpoint that, do you? Well, I think that certainly there's potential for that. And I guess the other interesting sort of element of that is that th- those are the industries where where the bill is largely picked up by the government. So um, that's the other sort of interesting uh, point to this. Um, and of course, last time that we had the ACTU and the BCA uh, agree on some of these changes, we did have a huge amount of pushback from certain industry bodies like the Master Builders Association, for example, who, who effectively um, were able to kill that off last time because of concerns about how that would affect their industry. So, um, yeah, look, it wouldn't surprise me, despite there being fairly strong support within the government for this, I'm not sure whether they're going to want to pick the fight with business and industry to to make it, you know, economy-wide, and particularly as Albanese has made it pretty clear that he wants to be seen as a friend of business as well. So, I mean, it all remains to be seen, and we might have a better idea tomorrow as to where the consensus points actually are, but um, I I feel like an industry-wide bargaining change is probably unlikely. 
And then, uh, you know, you say he wants to be a friend of business. We know mm. that opposition leader Peter Dutton won't be attending the summit and mm. the New South Wales Liberal Premier Dominic Perrottet will be there, mm. as well as other premiers and chief ministers. Uh, the unions have 25% of the invites and Peter Dutton is calling it the union summit. Uh, that's the way that the opposition is trying to paint it. What do you make of the guest list? Is it is there an ideological story here? Well, look, I mean, I thought it was very, you know, it's sort of like planning the, you know, it's like a wedding, a wedding guest list nightmare. Yeah, you're always isn't it? annoying but, someone. <laughs> but I thought it was interesting that unions and business, you know, got precisely 25% uh, of the invitations each. Obviously, that was very carefully curated. Um, and then, you know, you've got you've got some lobby groups and, and peak bodies. You've got community groups and academics also represented. I mean, you know, I don't think anyone can be really surprised that uh, a Labor convened uh, industrial Relations Summit is going to have strong representation from unions. I think you'd be pretty surprised if it was, you know, more heavily dominated by uh, business groups. So, um, yeah, look, I think they've done a reasonable job. I mean, there's some some groups who are who are unhappy, obviously, but um, yeah, I, I don't I don't envy the <laughs> I don't envy the the process of having to put together the guest list, and it did go from a hundred to one hundred and thirty yeah. pretty quickly. So. Yeah, the cost of that wedding's got much more expensive. Yeah. Um, and just just finally on this, before we move on to to other issues, um, the notion of um, trade-offs, because there will be trade-offs, and the government's already, after National Cabinet yesterday, the, the states and territories and the federal government have come to the table with thousands and thousands more fee-free TAFE places investing in skills training. Now, mm. this is getting in ahead of the debate, I presume, over migration places, increased um, skilled and unskilled migration numbers, which is a big, big demand of business. Mm. So the so the government's coming with that to the table to help try and mollify the um, ACTU in part, I think. Um, but in terms of not wanting to pick a fight with business, you know, business has got uh, a big thing they need here. They need the number of skilled migration places to be lifted and they need it to be done quickly. Mm. And that will presumably be hanging over them. Um, when they speak earlier in the negotiate earlier in the summit around the enterprise bargaining agreements, for instance, we were just talking about, like they're mm. going to know that if they don't come to the table there for the government later on tomorrow, when the government wants to talk about skilled migration places, that um, the government might come not come to their aid too. So there's a a bit of that kind of equating going on, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty on the bargaining table, and I guess um, you know re the really interesting stuff with the skilled migration intake is what conditions are going to be put on that for employers. So, you know, the union has obviously given conditional support to lifting uh, the cap from 160,000 to uh, just below 200,000 and business is pushing for the 200,000 figure. But there's a bunch of conditions they want a link to that to ensure that it's not just the easy option for employers to rely on a, a skilled, skilled migrant in the first instance, that there remain some incentives in the system to try and, uh, you know, employ a, a, a local worker first and, and also... Um, there's going to need to be more more emphasis on on training and and skilling up the existing workforce. So that's obviously all to be negotiated. I think you can also expect to see um, some some pretty significant changes to those in Australia already who are on temporary and bridging visas. And um, the government has made pretty clear, and Albanese has mentioned this several times, that he really wants to focus on uh, helping people become permanent residents. And and you know obviously the not just the work rights that come with that, but the uh, I guess the social cohesion um, emphasis of that as well, which Hoorah. I think is really interesting. Hoorah. Yeah, bring it on. <laughs>
Now, another part of uh, the... Dis- well, they're not going to be formal part of the discussions, but certainly some groups have wanted them to be, so I'll put it that way, mm. is in relation, if I can sort of pivot and change topic to the stage three tax cuts. Yeah. Uh, this has become a really big issue this week. Um, we even saw veteran Liberal MP Russell Broadbent breaking ranks with his party, saying that stage three tax cuts for the nation's highest paid workers, which start in two years, should be abandoned and the money put back into government services because the world has changed since they were legislated in 2018. And there's no doubt Mm. that there has been a lot of change in the world. No one would contest that. The measure cost the budget $243 billion and scrapped that 37% tax bracket for those earning above $120,000. And we know that um, according to kind of the the analysis of the numbers, a lot of it it goes because men uh, are the highest income earners in the country to men too. So there's been gender analysis around it all too. This week, lots of pressure on this issue. Where is the government going on this one? It's a really good question. There is more pressure mounting on the on the government on this issue. However, I just cannot see a way through this politically for them. Um, you know, the problem. The, I guess the main problem they've got is the the main benefit of the third stage comes in in 2024-2025, right? So before the next election. So either you have to go to the next election promising to repeal or change or um, wind back something that's already in place, which I think is really politically difficult, um, or you have to break what is essentially an election promise and something that an election promise that the Prime Minister has been pretty firm on since May that he intends to keep. Now, I think it's been interesting to see the language of Jim Chalmers. There is like a little tiny fraction of wriggle room there in terms of him saying they're sort of yet to consider uh, what's happening two years down the track. They've been very much focused on the here and now. Um, But I think politically it's very difficult. I think it's far more likely that they'll keep them in place and then go to the next election with some sort of other... Uh, measure to claw some of it back. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, yes, I agree with you. It's difficult politically mm. for them to dump it, but it's all, it's difficult politically for them to support it too because yeah. if you zero in <laughs> yeah, on that parliamentary right. budget office modelling we saw this week, the mm. case for change is compelling. I mean, PK mentioned the gender analysis. Mm. People earning over 180000 and and there's more men in that group than there are women, are the big winners. Um by a mile and you know it's also a suggestion that I think it's uh, what is it the top one percent um, earn get as much benefit from these tax cuts as the bottom 65 percent like oh, the it's case completely insane the yeah. case for equity is clear yeah. and this yeah. is a labor government so yeah. it's going to be very difficult for them to stick with these tax cuts but you know what could they do people are suggesting something like a, um, a deficit levy or a tax on the rich mm. akin to what Tony Abbott did I suppose mm. in in which case you give with one hand you give you give the, the wealthier amongst us the, the tax cuts and then you take with the other by whacking a levy on them. I don't know that they'll do that, but um, I really can't see how they can just think that they can live with these. Well, particularly when the budget's under so much pressure. I mean, they are in- enormously expensive. They've got demands on them every which way for more spending, uh, particularly as cost of living concerns become even more pressing. Um, I think of that 240-odd billion, like 160 billion of it goes to men and 82 billion to women. So you're absolutely right on the gender equity 
argument. In some ways, it kind of reminds me a bit of the argument after the 2013 election over Tony Abbott's gold-plated maternity leave uh, promise. And, you know, that sort of pressure really built and built for that. I um, love your memory. That is such a good comparison. Don't you think? Like, it's sort of like it's similar, you know, they were standing by it. They, you know, Mm. Abbott was sort of out there saying his election promise was sticking by it. And then, you know, once you sort of started having, like, the pressure building and then you had people breaking ranks, Within the coalition, it you know it was it was time it was time for it to go. So I don't think it's impossible that they tweak it or, you know, make some changes to it. But they're going to have to be fairly be feel, being feeling fairly confident about the impotence of the opposition. Which I mean, I think right now they're pretty confident about that. Um, but uh, you know, they're going to have to feel that they can get away with They'll it. They'll change. It. They have to. I think. Mm. I'm not sure. It's I'm not sure such either. a dilemma. Oh, it's like a lose-lose. All right. Um, uh, look, that's one of those things that um, just shows that, yes, being in government is glorious because you've got power, but also being in government is hard because you've got mm. power. Uh, so it's not, not so it's easy. It's a tough one. Mm. It is. Just before we let you go, I just want to uh, just reflect on the fact that we've had quite a significant shift in our COVID management, which has been such a dominant... Uh, um, both mm. health and economic story in our country for such a long time now and the world. Um, the isolation period being decreased to five days from seven. Dominic Perrottet really led the, the charge on that one and now it's happened. It, it starts Friday week. We're recording this on a Thursday. And... Uh, the the it's up for discussion whether the pandemic payment stays after September two. We don't know what will happen after then. Mm. Sarah, this is a big shift, um, and the epidemiologists aren't all very happy either. They think that this is a risky decision, but clearly the prime minister really want to moves in the, wants to move in this direction, right? Yeah, so obviously a big change going from the seven days ISO to five days ISO. Um, the epidemiologists saying this is politics-based, not science-based. Um, from what I gather, even though it's not going to see a huge spike in cases because we're on that downward trajectory, I guess what we're going to see is people who would not be infected be infected at work. So that's the, the, the decline may be slower and then the plateau that we reach may be higher. So um, I think it is, it's, you know, clearly more people are going to have COVID as a result of this. Um, but you know, they, they are under a huge amount of pressure to just sort of treat this like any other cold. Um, National Cabinet sort of spoke about personal responsibility and people needing to just stay home when they're sick. Um, but the problem with that is COVID is not like any other cold and mm. it doesn't, you know, we had 550 people die in the past 10 days. Um, you know, we're still a lot we don't understand about long COVID and, you know, disability arising out of the disease. So, yeah, look, I think there's obviously very mixed views about this, um, but clearly the political judgment is that the public wants to see a change um, and I guess we'll just have to live with the consequences of that. And then there's oh, also, I think it's an economic judgment, not a, not oh, a political well, yeah, judgment. Well, I reckon I think- it's political too. Oh, mm. no, I think it reflects a view in the community because even the Health mm. Services Union uh, boss led the charge yeah, to get rid true. of the isolation period full stop. And when I really pressed him on RM Breakfast, he said, look, this is what the community wants. And the other part of it, which I think is really interesting, is this idea of compliance. And I think that's mm. a really – it's an interesting point – that people just a lot of people just aren't following the rule anyway. Is the I don't even think a lot of people aren't even testing anymore. Like, God, 
Right. You know. My poor daughter stayed in her room for seven days. Some people are really sticking to the rules. <laughs> You're very hardcore, PK. Well, I'm just, I just, I, I, I wonder about that. If there are people circulating in the community knowing they've got COVID just because they think the horse has bolted, uh, there is a discrepancy between rules and behaviour too. So that's where the politics comes in, right, Sarah? Like catching up to where people are at. Yeah, and look, you know, it's been a, a tough few years and people are sort of wishing it away, I think. Like, they, people don't want to be, don't want to know about it anymore. Don't want to wear masks on airplanes. Don't want to wear masks on airplanes. But, you know, it's, it's, it, we, we can't wish it away. It's still, it's still a reality. It's still making people sick. It's still killing people. It's, um, you know, I, I think you're right, Fran, about the economic judgment as well, and particularly in regards to the pandemic payment. And clearly Jim Chalmers has indicated that that can't go on forever. So, um, you know, the, there is there is a lot of tension there. And I think we'll just see these gradually winding back, all these restrictions. Um, but and then, then I guess then, we're faced but, with another wave. Well, what then happens there's the then? health consequences you've laid out. Mm. So then there's a responsibility on government to go along with this, some kind of ongoing communication campaign so we all know Mm -hmm. that actually wearing masks is a great protection to do Mm -hmm. when you're in a crowded place on an aeroplane for instance or in the supermarket you know or in a crowded place so that people just don't because it's 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 not as you say it's not just a cold for most for many people it is but for many it's not and also you know particularly for those people who are immunosuppressed and having to you know, they they are now having to take extra precautions because the wider community won't. And I think that's really sad as well. And people who are feeling like they have to stay home because if they go out, no one's wearing masks anymore and they're at increased risk. So, um, you know, there's a huge amount still to play out. And it's, it's um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a tough one. It is. It's a wicked problem. Mm. See you, Sarah. Thanks for coming in. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. We'll move to questions without notice. We'll give the call to the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Prime Minister. And it's time for our question time. This week's question comes from Dr Mel VT. Uh, and the question is this. The pace of activity for new Albanese Labor government reminds me much of the new Rudd Labor government in 2007-2008, and we know how that turned out. There are a few emojis there too. (laughs) Any signs ALP has learned from that experience? Once again, they are pitched into economic crisis, which adds to strain of incumbency. Okay. Well, Dr Mel, I think one thing we can see that they've learned from is not so much looking right back to the the Rudd Labor years of 2007-8, but more the the realm of the, the last Liberal government, the Scott Morrison government, where the pace was, how should we call it, uh, glacial. I mean, apart from, of course, the, the flurry around the pandemic, which should not be understated, and the government, you know, were shoulders to the wheel there. But um, right th- going back to the last election before this one, the, the government had very little legislative reform. They had very little to say and to promise that they were going to do in that last election campaign in 2019. And then they had very little on the books when before everything was sidelined by the pandemic. So I think um, the Labor government has decided we are not going to do that. Anthony Albanese says, government, you're there for for, for a short time, not a good time, and um, you've just got to not waste a moment of it, and you've got to put your shoulder to the wheel, otherwise what's the point? So that's what we're seeing here, I think, him trying to differentiate himself from Scott Morrison as a leader, as a leader who gets things done. That's what Anthony Albanese is trying to do. The lessons from the Rudd government, you're right, the Rudd government... Kevin Rudd also started in a flurry with, um, had the apology. Um, there was a number of things after that. Um, 
But then what happened? Well, a little bit of it was chaos, a little bit of it was confusion, a little bit was uh, emperor sort of driven. And I think Anthony Albanese has learned some lessons from that, a lesson of good cabinet government. And he's casting back to the Hawke cabinet, I think, for his model of how to government, which is really first amongst equals, um, sharing out to those who have more expertise than he does in certain policy areas. And that's most of them because he's actually pretty light on on policy experience, really. Um, but, but also, so just good process. And I think we did see that with a couple of things already. When when the um, ministry gate crisis came up, for instance, the Prime Minister's first instinct was to get advice from the Solicitor General. I mean, that's the sort of thing a good government will do, which is a pro- be process-driven, but not sort of captured by process. And, and I think we are seeing some encouraging signs, but it's the first 100 days, that's a honeymoon period, and you're right, there's going to be a whole lot of pressure on this government because of the economic crisis and the global crisis that they face, and that's what happens to governments. They face real pressures, and it's a test of any government about how they respond to them. Yeah, and I think that... If anyone has learned the lessons from the Rudd-Gillard era, it has actually very much Anthony Albanese who was yeah, good point. at the centre of a lot of that in terms of absorbing the pain. Remember, he didn't think that Kevin Rudd should be rolled uh, and then he stood by Julia Gillard who was quite um, loyal to the leaders and didn't think that you should be churning through Labor leaders like that. When he was under pressure in opposition... Uh, and he was. There was a period there where he was, you know, seen as not landing any punches. And he kept telling them, you know, this is going to take time. Be patient. So I think that he is not a knee-jerk kind of dude. Um, <laughs> and I think he's demonstrated that, actually, through years of being in, in politics. And so that's the lesson, not to be knee-jerk, mm. too, because every time they got the wobblies during those years, they, they sort of look at them. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they, they caused all sorts of chaos for themselves, and that's when they felt pressure from the public. So he'll be saying to his own party, if they do get the wobblies, we must be patient. So I think that's a really interesting um, part of it too. All right, that's it for us, I think, for a little, for well, till next week, right, Fran? I think it's time for us to bid everyone farewell. Yeah, farewell, everybody. But before we go, don't forget, send your questions in. Thanks for all your questions this week. They were great. We love getting them. You can tweet using hashtag the party room or email your questions to thepartyroom at abc.net.au. And you can follow us, of course, on the ABC Listen app. So you never, never miss out on a week. How good is that? Pretty good. All right, that's it for The Party Room. Thank you so much. See you, Fran. See you, PK. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.